But our strategy, we talked about last week, is to take initiative. There you go. There's conflict resolution. 90% of conflict resolution. 90% of resolving the conflicts that have been plaguing us for years. 90% of conflict resolution is not, is not technique. It's a mindset, which is take initiative. Turn around, as we talked about last week. Be a peacemaker, not a peace lover, or a peace wisher for, or a peace desirer. Be a peacemaker, someone who goes and does something about it. Because, as we said, if you win at relationships, you win at life. And if you lose at relationships, you lose at life. When all is said and done, you have lots of accomplishments. If you fail when it comes to relationships, you lose. And the opposite is true. You may not have a lot of degrees, you may not have a lot of accomplishments, you may not have to If you've got rich relationships, you win. That's our goal. You can catch up parts one and two online. Go to www.scsa.church and you can catch up online in case you missed the first two parts. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about boundaries today. And boundaries is another one of those topics, kind of like conflict resolution last week. That we were never taught about boundaries in school. We're never taught these things growing up. But I believe it is impossible to live in healthy relationships unless you have healthy boundaries. We're going to dig into that, what that means today. But first, the story. Once upon a time, there was a man who had a daughter who he loved dearly. And his daughter came to him when she was a little bit older. Okay, and she came to him before she got married. And, you know, she was living in his house and she was just the delight of his heart. And she came in with the words that no dad wants to hear from his daughter, which is, I'm getting married. <laughs> something, something else, maybe. She didn't say that. That would be another series. I'm getting married. I met the one. I met the guy. So the father, of course, knew the day would come at some point in time. All of his dads, it's coming at some point in time. We try to resist him. We know it's coming. So he says, okay, I want to meet the young man. Get to know the guy. You change the time, the guy comes over for dinner, you're hanging out, and he wants to have a discussion. He says, young man, let's go sit over here and have a discussion. I'm going to marry my daughter, let's have a discussion. So he just says, start with small talk. What do you do for them? That's his mother. I do nothing. You got a job? No, I do nothing. That's how you provide. He says, don't worry. I trust that God will provide. God will provide. So now the dad's like, oh, he played your God with the light card. So he's like, either an angel come down from heaven, he gets fed man in the desert by the ravens, or he's a lazy bum who's trying to live off my daughter's income. <laughs> okay, God will provide. You got any assets? You got, you got any, any, any kind of savings? He says, no, sir. God will provide. God will provide that to you. You don't have anything. You don't have a savings account. You don't have like a 401k. You got like a piggy bank, like a port, like nothing. No, sir. But I trust that God will provide. He says, okay, one last question. What are your dreams, aspirations, plans? And he says, I got none. Because God will provide. Father walks out the room, calls his wife, he's in the kitchen, so we talk. She says, Tell me what's the matter like. He says, I got good news and bad news. She says, What's the bad news? The bad news? He got a job, he had no plans, he had no dreams, he is a bump. What's the good news? The good news? He thinks I'm God. <laughs> that story, that story illustrates an important point when it comes to boundaries. Because if you want to know why do I have boundary problems with people, oftentimes the source of the conflict that I have with those people is somebody expecting me to be God for them. Somebody expecting me to be the solution to their money problems, their loneliness problems, their family problems, their emotional baggage problems. Oftentimes, we get ourselves into trouble and we have conflict in our relationship because somebody is looking to me to play a role that I'm not supposed to play. Only God is the solution to everybody's problem, not any person. So what we need to figure out when we talk about boundaries is what is my role and what is God's role? Like, what is the limit? How far is far enough? Like, how many chances? How far do I go and help him? Like, how far do I extend myself when someone needs me? My brother needs me, my sister needs me, someone in the church needs me. The answer to our question is going to be to define 
healthy, God-honoring, God-pleasing boundaries. So let's start with a working definition of what a boundary is. It's a very simple definition. doesn't require a lot to understand. Let's try to let's get a definition, and we'll try to unpack it as it applies to our lives. So a boundary, simply put, just think about this like in the world, like in the physical world, a boundary simply defines my area of responsibility. A boundary says what's mine and what's yours. If there's a fence between my house and your house, that's a boundary, and that says that if the tree falls on this side, it's my responsibility, falls on that side, it's his responsibility. If the dog boots on this side, that's my responsibility, dog boots on that side, Sorry, that's your responsibility. A boundary, a sign, okay, demarks what's my responsibility and what's yours. Now, I can help him on his side, like he's got, doesn't have a great job mowing the lawn, so I say, you know what, I'll go to the guy a bone, I'll help him out. But just because I'm helping him, it's not my responsibility. My responsibility on this side, his responsibility on that side. What would life look like in the physical world if there was no boundaries? Or if there were fuzzy boundaries or unclear boundaries. If I didn't know where it's my yard or where it's his yard, if, if it begins here or it begins there, what would life look like? Well, I would say life would be confusing. It would probably lead to a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of unnecessary tension. If I didn't know, if I go the one up to here and he go up to there and we sit there and fight over this, very simple solution is a clear boundary to say, I up to here, you over there, and like I said, we can help each other, but in the end, each one must know it's their responsibility. I believe the same is true emotionally and spiritually. We need to learn what is my responsibility to define what is my area of responsibility and what is your area. And I can help you with yours, you can help me with mine, but in the end, you're responsible for yours, I'm responsible for mine. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, kind of set the tone for us here today. King Solomon says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. You know what those issues of life are, right? Like, that doesn't need an explanation. Those are the, the anger. That's the bitterness and the resentment. That's the baggage. Those issues of life. What, what King Solomon is saying is keep your heart. Other translations say guard your heart. It is out of its spring the issues of life. So let's, 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 let's kind of say it this way. Anything that affects my heart is my responsibility. Anything that affects my heart, my thoughts, my feelings, my behavior, my bitterness, my resentment, my hatred, my unforgiveness, all of those things that come out of my heart and affect my heart is my responsibility. And I must take ownership of it. We don't like that. What's easier to do than take responsibility is find fault. And that's generally what we prefer to do. So what we prefer to say is, I can't love my wife, and it's my parents' fault, is the way they raise it. It's their fault. The reason that I don't do a good job at work is because of my boss or my coworkers. It's their fault. The reason I'm so angry is because of my kids. It's my kids' fault that I'm so angry. And what I say is, while it certainly may be their fault, and it certainly may be your boss's fault. And your parents may have messed you up. I have not denied that. For sure, there's blame to be, to be laid. But I'm trying to make a distinction between fault and responsibility. Even though maybe somebody else's fault is my responsibility to solve. But it'll always be easier to hold my hands and say it's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. But the God-honoring thing to do is to man up, take ownership and say, even if it's your fault, it's my responsibility. I can draw you a picture. Several years back, we had the cleaning people came to our house. Right? They came over and they did what they were going to do. They cleaned the house. And after they had left, okay, so we had in the, in the front the, the deadbolt that had the key in it. Okay, not the one with the swinging thing. Okay, so the key was in the deadbolt itself. So after they had left, I noticed the key wasn't there anymore. They left and the key was gone. So I automatically said, oh no, they took the key. Uh, as the story goes, they actually didn't take the key. They lost the Just go with me and assume they didn't take the key. Makes the story much I thought to myself, oh no, they took the key. And they need to replace that key. And I'm going to stand there and say, it's their fault that my house has no way to lock itself. It's their fault. Is that what I did? I'm just going to sit here and say, and someone says, well, your house is vulnerable to robbers. Well, it's not my fault. 
No, my fault. It's their fault. They took the key. They should replace it. They should come back here. Would anyone in the right mind do that? No. I didn't go to bed that night, so I went to Home Depot, bought new locks in the house, and placed all the locks in the house. Why? It's not my fault the key is gone. It's their fault. Yeah. But I stand to lose a lot if some bad guy walks in and steals my stuff. Because I care what's inside. What's inside the house is too valuable to me. My wife, my kids, my stuff. So I can't sit here and say, well, their fault. And some of us, if we're honest, that's how we're living life. We're kind of letting all this bad stuff happen to us. We say, well, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. Well, it's my boss's fault. It's my kids' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my, my, my husband's fault. It's their fault that I'm so angry. It's their fault that I don't tell the truth. It's their fault that I have these bad habits. Okay, yeah, it truly may be their fault. But it is your responsibility. And some of us, like me with the lock, with the cleaning people, need to have a little sense of urgency. You need to realize that, yes, while it was somebody else's fault, you are losing a very valuable part of your life. You are leaving yourself vulnerable. Your marriage, your family, your faith, your spiritual life is vulnerable. And you should just sit there and say it's somebody else's fault. I'm not denying the fault of somebody else. What I'm saying is maybe time to take responsibility myself. The way we do that is by having healthy boundaries. Boundaries work how? Boundaries have two parts to it. Boundaries have defense and a gate. Again, if I have, this is my land right here, the stage is my land, that's your land right there, it's my neighbor right there. I have a fence that goes all the way around, but it has to have a gate or a door that I can go in and out. Like, what's the point of building up just walls up to the sky where we have to jump up? Like, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a fence to protect you, but you also have to have a gate to go, stuff goes in and out. The fence to keep the bad stuff out, the robbers, okay, the stray cats, okay, the neighbors kids, some of the girls got cookies, like whatever it may be. The, the, the fence is to keep the stuff that I don't want on the outside. The gate is to let the stuff that I do want on the inside. Wife can come in. Friends can come in. Kids. Most of the time, you come in. <laughs> Gotta have a fence to keep the bad out. Gotta have a gate to allow the good in. If you have only gates with no walls, you let stuff come in and out, you are vulnerable. Okay, you are, like I said, your faith is vulnerable. Your family life is vulnerable. Your mental health is vulnerable if you just allow anybody to come in and come out of your property. If you have walls with no gate, well, then you say, well, I'm protected. No one can hurt me. But no one can also help you. And no one can be let in. So we don't want to be either extreme, which is vulnerable to everything, but also isolated where nobody can get in or nobody can get out. So we're going to look at this verse from 2 Timothy 2, 22-23. And St. Paul says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing they generate strife. What St. Paul is saying to his disciple Timothy is, you got to know what to let in and what to let out. Lust, get that stuff out. Righteousness, let that in. Faith in, love in, peace in. Foolish, disputes, get it out. Ignorant, get it out. Strife, get it out. So my point here is to say is there's a little bit of a discernment process. It's not all cut and dry. We need to be able to figure out what to pursue, what to shy away from. Who is the guy, like I said, is a robber coming to steal? Get him out. Who is the one the friend is coming to help? Let him in. Either extreme is going to be in a bad, is to a bad place. So, how do we determine what goes in and what goes out? Your brother comes to you. Needs money. You let him in out. Your mom. No matter how many times you told her you don't want to be in the middle, keeps putting you in the middle with, you, with her and her, your dad. And this is now like a stress for you and your current family. She's putting you in the middle. What do you do? Your friend says, I need to talk. I need to talk tonight. You got a date with that guy that you know he's going to come back around again. What do you do? Who's on that side? Who's on this side? What I'm trying to say is it's not, it's not rules. That make it nice and easy and cut and dry. How do we determine what's on the outside or what's on the inside? What I'm responsible for, what I'm not responsible for. Let me ask you this way. Am I responsible for others? Or just myself? Like I said, my brother needs help financially. Am I responsible? Am I responsible? Someone in the church lost their job. Am I responsible? Am I responsible? 
I'm just supposed to care about myself and I'm responsible for myself and kind of close myself off? Or do I help? But I, if I help, then I, I, I kind of lose control of my own stuff. What's the answer to the question? Am I responsible for others or just myself? That's not a question. I'll say it this way and I'll explain I would say I'm not responsible for others, but I am responsible to others. I am responsible to others, not for them. What do I mean by that? That's just like that fancy way of saying, I don't really know, just kind of figure it out on your own. We're going right, to look at a passage in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, St. Paul, in two verses, okay, one is verse 2, and one is verse 5, so it's only separated by three verses, but there are two verses between them. St. Paul seems to contradict himself in this chapter in these two verses. Because one verse is going to seem to say that we should be responsible for the problems of others, and we should help them. It kind of sounds like a Christian thing to do. And then the next verse, a couple verses later, is going to seem to say, let them figure it out themselves, which also seems like a Christian thing, like everyone needs to kind of, you know, be, be responsible for their own stuff. We're going to see how we can reconcile these two and put them together. And the key in understanding these two verses is going to be understanding the difference in the meaning between the word burden and load. Burden and load. Let's look at the verses, and then we'll unpack it. So Galatians 6.2, Galatians 6.5. First says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the first viewpoint, which says, we should help. You should help your brother, of course. If your brother can't pay the bills, of course you should. Of course you should be there for your mom. Of course you should be there for your friend. Of course. Verse 5 says, each one shall bear his own load. Which kind of makes it sound like, ha, let them, don't enable them. And don't just keep giving and giving and giving and giving. That's why they've got to pay the consequences and they have to be able to learn the lesson. So which one is it? Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. If you like words like communal, if you like words like serve, if you like words like help the needy, you like verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. This is our job as Christians. Of course we should carry the burdens of others. How can we be the body of Christ if we don't bear one another's burdens? Verse 5. Is you, if you like the words accountability, fairness, responsibility, hard work. Of course, each one should, should be held accountable to their actions. Isn't that the godly thing? I would make these two work together. The word burden and load are two different words in Greek. You're going to have a lesson in Greek right now. The word burden is pronounced barras. Say that word. Say barras. And I roll that R and I do it back in Spanish. I say barras. Barras means a burden. But I'll read the definition right here: a heaviness, a weight, a burden, or a trouble. And what's implied is something weighing me down. Think of like a big, huge boulder. That's what a barras is. Is something that I'm being crumbled or crushed underneath the weight of, it, and I cannot hold it on my own. And for us, what it says, we should bear one another's barras. Say barras again. It's a fun thing to say, isn't it? Barras. Feel good on the inside, didn't you? Now the next word also has a fun pronunciation as well. The word load, partion. Partion. Say partion. It sounds like partion. Partion. Partion means... It can also be translated as burden sometimes, okay? Well, what it means more accurately is the freight or lading or cargo of a ship. So what that means is when you see one of those big boats with the thing that's pulling on the back, it's not being crushed under its weight, it's what it's supposed to carry. You carry this freight, you carry it, it's my cargo. So think of a burden as a boulder crushing me, think of a load as a briefcase or a backpack which I left the house with, and it's my responsibility to carry throughout the day. The problem, the problem is when we treat boulders like backpacks, and backpacks like boulders. The problem is when we go to someone who is being crushed under the weight of a boulder, and we say, your responsibility, accountability, responsibility, good luck to you, man. That is not what Christ taught us to do. But the other problem, Okay, that's the unloving, ungenerous side. The other problem is when we treat a backpack like a boulder. And that's what we enable. 
And that's when we're not helping the person, we're loving the person, we're actually hurting them. We're saying, let me carry that for you. Because it, it, not because it's too heavy for them, but it's inconvenient for them. And each of those extremes is wrong. What St. Paul says, if it's a boulder or a barras, a barras, that's when the body of Christ jumps in, and that's when we bear one another's burdens. But if it's just a simple fartion, say fartion, yeah, you gotta say fartion like that, if it's just a fartion, that each one shall bear his own load. My responsibility, we're going to two biblical passages right now, my responsibility, I'm a math guy, so you're a math guy, burden minus load equals my responsibility. It means if someone is carrying this much, and what they can handle is this much, the delta, the difference, that's the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not coming to carry people's loads. Each one should bear their own load. Accountability. That's Christianity 101. What else Christianity 101 is, is when someone's got a load that's too big for them, that's called a bird. They can handle, just to put it in math terms, they can handle a seven, but on their plate is a nine. The two... That's where we come in. We don't carry the seven. We carry the two. Two biblical examples. Story of the Good Samaritan. The parable that everybody knows and a lot of people don't know in the Bible. Laws of Good Samaritan, Good Samaritan, and all else. people don't know that's actually a parable in the Bible. Jesus told a story about a man walking down the street, saw another guy who had been robbed and mugged and beaten and left for dead. And the man came to him. And what did he do? He saw this guy who was in a bad shape. He had a butterus. A burden that was too great for him. He could not help himself. So what happened? Luke chapter 10, verse 34. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. He saw the guy had a burden too great for him. The guy could not have bandaged his own wounds. The guy was going to die in the street unless somebody stepped in. That's the barrier bear one of those burdens. Look at the next verse. It is the, each one shall bear his own boat. On the next day, when he, he did what? He departed. When he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, whatever more you spend when I come, I will pay you. When he did what? He departed. If you struggle with boundaries, if you struggle with boundaries, you struggle, imagine the good Samaritan had no boundaries. Imagine he had no, no concept of each one shall bear his own load. And he said, you know what, I gotta get back, my wife, my kids, I got duties, I got responsibilities. And he had no boundaries, he would have said, Oh, but I can't believe the guy. Oh, but the guy needs help. And he would have said to the guy, Hey, do you mind if I go? And the guy's like, No. Especially like let's say the guy was a guilty kind of guy, kind of like, you know, maybe there's people in your life who like to guilt you. No, you can't leave me. I can't take care of myself. You're leaving with the innkeeper, I don't trust him. And if this good Samaritan had no boundaries, okay, I'll stay another day, another day, another day, another day. Help me out right here. If the guy had no boundaries and he stayed and he helped and he stayed and he helped and he stayed and he helped, what would be the long-term result of that? What do you think would happen the next time the good Samaritan would see someone on the road who needed a hand? What do you think he'd do? Nothing. He'd walk right by. He said, the last time I did this, it cost me three months of my life. And that guy suckered me in, and he was resentful and bitter, and the long-term result of no boundaries is nobody gets any help. Thank God. He had boundaries. And he said, I will help you with your burden. But at some point, you need to take ownership. You take responsibility. Like, you're okay now. Jesus, in John chapter 5. Did Jesus have good boundaries? Let me show you this story. John chapter 5. Story of when Jesus was by the pool of Siloam. And it says, by the pool of Siloam lay many sick and dying people. Okay, the thought of this place, if you tell me the most disgusting place on planet Earth must have been this place. The stench must have been the horrible. And Jesus went. Okay, the, the theory was that this pool in front of all these sick people would get stirred up by the angel, first one in would get healed. The sick man, John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. The sick man answered Jesus. Okay, Jesus said, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. This is an interesting part. Every time I read this, why does this take up your bed? Like, think about it. You've been lying down on a mat for 38 years. 
going to be a little sore in the back, okay? I get up in the morning, I can't even pick up my socks sometimes. So like, okay, I got up 38 years, okay? You made me walk miraculously. Just make the mat jump up into my hands. Like, why bend down and why? All the miracles Jesus could have done. He can't make the bed pop up. Can't make the bed float. Like, I have to bend down and carry my own bed. Why? Burden, healing. I got you. Bed, load. Bend down and pick it up yourself. See how Jesus is? Burdens, bear one another's burdens. Load, pick it up yourself. Boundaries. And notice, I'll show you also how Jesus had boundaries. I told you this pool was surrounded by sick people. How many of them Jesus healed this day? Just one. Just one. I often think to myself, like Jesus on his way. I don't know. I'm making this up, so I could be wrong. I doubt that the sick man in this place, okay, was hundreds of sick people, okay, hundreds. And again, the place was disgusting. I doubt that this guy was the first guy Jesus ran into. I doubt that Jesus just walked in and he's the first guy. Okay, first guy, you get the healing. Congratulations. I imagine Jesus stepping over, going around, kind of weaving his way through to get to this man. Well, Jesus, why don't you heal that one? How about that one? If Jesus had no boundaries, why he only healed that one, I don't know. I'm not God. I'm not going to say, pretend like I know. But my point is, is that sometimes Jesus said no to people. And sometimes Jesus walked right by them. And that doesn't make you unloving or unchristian. Carry one another's burdens. Each one shall bear his own load. Now, oftentimes when I'm, when I'm preaching up here, I like to give examples okay, to help kind of apply the situation. And this is a very difficult one for me to give examples. And I'm very, very hesitant because one person's burdens may be another person's load. So I don't want to kind of, like there's a context to every situation. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tiptoeing around this and I got a few examples. I'm going to draw them really extreme. Okay. And I realize that they're probably somewhere in between, but I, I, I hesitate because everyone has different abilities. And like I said, one person's load is another man's burden. So I really hesitate. So it really has to be prayerful when you apply this. But let's say, for example, somebody lost a job. Is that a burden or a load? It kind of depends. They lost their job because they got an accident. They got a sickness or because they were late to work again. I don't know. I can see one as a burden, one as a, one as a load. A mom asks you to babysit for her kids on a Friday night. Again, is that a burden or a load? I don't know. Is it because she's a single mom and she needs help and she's in over her head? Or is it because she wants to go to ladies night with the, with, the, with the girlfriends? Like, I don't know. You got a kid. Hey, there you go. <laughs> hey, there we go. <laughs> ladies night. Okay. It's always ladies night here. Okay. You got a kid getting picked on in school. And some parents jump and say, that's a burden. Well, is he getting picked? Like, is he in danger? Or is it maybe he needs to learn to stand up for himself? Like, I'm not telling you. I'm saying there's a context to everything. And we need to prayerfully discern what is a load and what is a burden. And when is the person able but just doesn't want to? Or when is it they are physically and spiritually and emotionally incapable and unable, and that's where we jump in. Now, there's one exception. There is one blanket rule. There is one exception that regardless of the scenario, regardless of the context, is always, regardless if it seems like someone's low and they should be able to carry, there is one example where you always jump in and help. As when your wife is upstairs in bed and she says, I'm thirsty and she needs a drink of water. At that point in time, gentlemen, is not the time to preach the difference between a burden and a load. <laughs> if you do, you will have a bad night and so will I, okay? So you just get up and you just get the cup of water. That's the only exception, everything else, all right? Now, as we did last week, kind of set the big picture, the mindset. Let's jump into three practical steps. Three practical steps of how to implement boundaries in our relationships. And I'm gonna go through them quickly and I'm gonna spend the least amount of time on number one, but I'm telling you, number one is the most important of them all. And if you don't do number one, the other two don't really matter. I'm gonna go through it quick because it's simple, but it is the most important one if you wanna set healthy boundaries in any relationship. 
And that is, start with a win-win mindset. You must start with a win-win mindset. A mindset which says, it's not either I win or you win. It's not you get what you want or I get what I want. It said in the, in the terms of, of uh, uh, Stephen Covey, when he wrote, he said, finding a third option. I love that expression. Finding a third option. Meaning, there's something between, I do everything my family wants me to do or I disown them and they're not my family. There's something between canceling all my plans to be there for you on Friday night, every Friday night for the rest of eternity and disowning you as a friend. Like there's something between you get everything you want and I get everything I want. And this needs to be the way we begin the mind, our mindset as we begin. Honestly, someone was telling me this past week, we talked about conflict resolution last week and someone was telling me about me. So you know what, You're, you seem to be really good at conflict resolution. You, like you seem to, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'm very good at the technique, but I'm very good at this because I have an inherent belief inside me. I have a belief inside me that what God wants is good for you and good for me. And so many times there's a conflict and you want this and I want this. And I have this belief inside me. If you cut me to the core, this is my belief that whatever God wants will actually be good for you and good for me. And if what I want is not what God wants, it's gonna be bad for you and bad for me. That anything outside of God's option is actually gonna be bad for everybody involved. So you put this in your mind. And this is 90% of conflict resolution, of boundaries, of all relationships, of leadership, of managing. This is 90% of it that you put in your mind. There's an option where everybody wins. And you know when you put that in your mind? You don't stop till you find it. You don't get lazy and say it's what I want or what she wants or what he wants. You don't get lazy. You keep on discussing. You keep on praying. You keep on trying until you get to that third option where everyone says, this isn't what I originally came in thinking, but this is a win for me. That's 90%. But it's not 90% of my notes here, so let's go on to number two. Number two, turn every no into a yes. Turn every no into a yes. Did you know that every no is actually a yes to something else? And you need to learn how to turn your no's into yeses. Now, before I get into this, let me start by saying what I'm talking about here in this next section applies to people who struggle to say no. If you are very good at saying no, go back to number one. Because you may be very good at someone to help. No, no, no. Like if that's you, this is not for you. You are an expert at saying no. Maybe you, like I said, go back to the win-win mindset that you need to find a way that it's not just you get to say your no, but the other person gets the help that they need with their burden that they have. But for those who do struggle to say no, for those who know saying no is like a bad word. Some of us are raised that way. Like saying no is like bad. You can't say no to somebody you need. You can't say no. Who came up with the idea that no is a bad word? Who, who came up with the idea that saying no is the worst thing that you can do? Had to have been a telemarketer or somebody in sales or a friend of a telemarketer who probably owns like six insurance policies and like all those knives, okay? Who came up with the idea that you can't say no to anybody and you can never say no? I believe that sometimes the most Christ-like thing you can do is say no to a request. Don't believe me? We're gonna look at a passage here from Mark chapter one. In this passage, it comes, the context is Jesus is, is, is doing all these miracles and healing all these sick people. Okay, that's what he had been doing the day before. And then that night, as it says right here, Jesus went up on a mountain. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. He had spent the whole day with people doing miracles, doing all kinds of healings. So he needed time to reconnect with his father. There he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Simon and those who were with him searching. Why do you think they were searching for him? What do you think they wanted? Tell him good job yesterday. What do you think they wanted? They wanted more healings, more miracles. More people were lined up at the door and more sick people. Verse 37. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Look what Jesus did. He said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose, I have come forth. Like you're Jesus. Your job is to get to as many people as possible, right? Like your job, like you came down from heaven to spread the gospel and to proclaim the good news. You got an audience. 
He just said no. One day he said yes, 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 yes. No. Why Jesus would say no? Let me say it another way. Was Jesus saying no to them? Or was he saying yes to someone else? Who was he saying yes to? He said yes to these people in the beginning. Then these people came and said, we need a miracle. And he said no. But he didn't just say no. Why did he say no to them? So he could say yes to them. Because his no was actually a yes. Every no is a yes. Unless you, unlike me, have unlimited time, unlimited energy, mental and emotional, unless you have unlimited capacity to refuel yourself on the fly, then there are limits to what you can do. And every time you say no to something or somebody, you're actually saying yes to somebody else. For example, a friend asks you to go to coffee after work. A no to coffee with a friend might be a yes to dinner with the family. And inverse is true as well. A yes to the coffee with a friend is actually a no to your family dinner. See how that works? Brother needs help financially. A no to your brother financially, helping financially, may be a yes to honoring God with the tithing. One no leads to a yes, and one yes would lead to a no. People often come to me. Saturday night, they have a party or reception. We'd love for you to come. We'd love for you to come. If, if I were to say yes to that, who am I saying no to? Or it doesn't matter. Let me, actually, let me put it positive. By saying no to that reception on a Saturday night, I'm saying yes to the people who are coming to church on Saturday night who need to talk, who need the sacrament of confession. More so, by not people sometimes on Saturday night say, hey, let's go out and do all this. By saying no to staying out late on Saturday, I'm saying yes to being full of energy for every single one of you on Sunday morning. And I think that if I were to say yes to one person on a Saturday, what I'm essence saying is no to every single person who's coming here on Sunday. You see how it works? Every no is a yes. And learn if you struggle with no, to put your no in terms of a yes. Because sometimes to say yes to God's plan, you must say no to man's plan. The apostle said it this way in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. So feel free to say no, practice saying no. Get good at saying no. Get good at saying, you know what? I can't commit to another night out this week. I can't commit to it. Because by saying no to that, by saying yes to that, I'd be saying no to what my kids need me in the soccer and whatever it may be. Get used to saying when someone says, I really need your help, you know, moving or ride or whatever it may be. Say, you know what? I would love to say yes. But if I say yes to you, I'm actually saying no to my own personal sanity because I haven't slept much or I haven't prayed it all this week. It doesn't make you uncaring. Sometimes it makes you like Christ. Number three, number one was win-win mindset. Number two was turning your yes, turn your no into a yes. And number three, confront in love. Just like we said last week, the last step is always, we like to start with the confront and I'm gonna set some boundaries. I'm gonna tell my mom enough is enough. I'm gonna tell my brother enough is enough. No, no, no. That's the last step. And when we do that, we do so always in love. And again, just like I said a minute ago, if you are excited to confront, if I say confront, you're like, yeah, who needs a confrontation? Let's go. Like if that's you, man, hold your horses. I always say, if you're excited to confront, you are not ready to confront. You are not ready until you are dreading it and you've done everything possible to avoid it, but there is no other option. But most of us, we don't like confrontation. We don't like to tell people, we don't like conflict. We avoid confrontation like the plague. And we think, be honest here, be honest, don't be offended. We say it's out of love. But the truth is it's not out of love. It's actually out of selfishness. I have a group of guys that I've challenged to hold me accountable, to be my accountability. And I told them, I said, here's the rules of this, how this accountability thing works. I said, the rules are that if you don't point out a fault that you see, that is disrespectful. That is offensive to me. And that gets you kicked out of the group. So if you're not good at calling people out, then you don't belong in this group. You say, why? Well, it's very simple. Let's say I'm here, and let's say I'm walking like this. And there's my friend, Teresa, and I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. And let's say she loves me. What's she going to do right now? 
She would say, watch out. Okay? Let's say she, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to offend him. He, he, I don't want to interrupt him. No. Hey, if I'm walking off the stage, somebody, like, put the hands up. Okay? Somebody, like, do something. I don't want to fall off the thing. That's not loving. I remember one time, true story. This was back probably 10, 12, 15 years ago, something like that. I was at an event where uh, I think it was like a, a graduation party or something like that where I was about to go up on stage, okay, and give like a speech or say a prayer. I don't remember what it was about to be. And I was sitting at a table with a group, okay, with uh, some of the graduates. And as I was about to go up there on stage, okay, one of the guys who was like, a, I think it was like a high school senior at the time, he goes like this. And I'm like, what? And he goes, and I'm like, what? He leaned over and he goes, you got a booger. <laughs> was I offended? Was I offended? How dare you point out the booger on my face? How dare you? You know who I was offended by? The other seven people at the table who were respecting me too much to tell me, and I would make a fool of myself on stage, and I'm like, hello, ladies and gentlemen. And I got the booger hanging out my nose. Well, let me say this in front of everybody. It's on camera, so it's on, it's on permanent record. If ever you see me with a booger hanging out my nose, please tell me I will not be offended. I will not be upset. I will be very happy. And I think you too, do we agree that if you got a booger hanging out at your nose, if you got a booger hanging out your nose, would you like me to tell you? Nod your head, yes. Look at everyone's nodding their head. So anyone who sees someone with a physical or a spiritual booger hanging out their nose, the most loving thing you can do is tell them, hey, buddy, you're headed in the wrong path. Where you're going is not good. You're pushing away the people that you need the most right now. What you do is not a good thing. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. It's biblical. It's loving. It's Christ.
provide a consequence. Like I'm all for starting with our words and explaining and discussion and second chance, but come on. Sometimes you need, there needs to be a consequence. Sometimes you need to say, if you continue to speak to me this way, I will walk out. Sometimes that's the right thing to say. Sometimes you need to say, I will give you money this time, but if you ask for me money again, I will not give it to you. You need to get your life in order. You need to get a job. Sometimes that's the most loving thing you can say. Again, I'm not saying you start with a consequence. Think about it like children. If you have a three-year-old, and a three-year-old like misbehaves or like does, you know, like misplaces their toys. You're like, okay, junior, you know, put away your toys or whatever. And you, whatever. And then let's say the three-year-old takes a hammer and he's chasing his brother around the house, trying to smash him in the head with a hammer. You don't say, okay, you know, let's, let's think about the consequences and, you know, it could hurt his self-esteem. No, there's consequences. You try to hit your brother in the head with a hammer, there's consequences. I got news for you. Sorry. There are some 30-year-olds who behave like three-year-olds and need consequences. And they need you to say, enough. I will not take this anymore. There needs to be boundaries. I love you. I care about you, but I can't continue this way. Proverbs 19, 19 says, why? Because a hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again. Let's recap. Our goal, setting healthy boundaries, defining area of responsibility, what's mine, what's yours. I am not responsible for you. I'm responsible to you to help you with your burden, but you must carry your own load. Each one must carry their own load. The way we're going to approach setting healthy boundaries, number one, we're going to start with a win-win mindset. We're going to say that there's a third option. That's not either I mow your lawn or you mow my lawn. There's a third option where each one is doing just what they can handle. Number two, I will turn my no into a yes. I will realize that by saying no to this, I get to say yes to this. And if I say yes to this, I have to say no to this. So if we struggle with guilt, I can't say no, I can't say no. Never say no, just say yes. And if you say yes to the things that God wants you to say yes to, you'll have no choice other than to say no to the things that are outside of that plan. And then third, confront in love, sometimes with words, sometimes with consequences. Because that's the most loving thing you can do. Oftentimes I get asked for advice. People come to me, tell me their story, their situation. They say, what should I do in this situation? And I'll be honest, oftentimes I don't give them an answer. Because that's a really hard thing. Again, there's always a context. There's always a background story. And I hesitate to give advice when I don't know the whole story. Because you know what? Sometimes the godly thing is to stay and fight. Sometimes the godly thing is to go. Sometimes the godly thing is to give a second chance. Sometimes the godly thing is zero tolerance. We like rules. But God isn't rules. God is relationship. And if you see the way Jesus dealt with every single person. It was as unique as their circumstance. Samaritan woman, different than adulterous woman, different than Canaanite woman. Nicodemus, different than the other Pharisees, different than Pilate, different than Caiaphas. Each one unique. But you know what? There's one common thread. There's no rule, but there's one common thread that ties together all of Jesus' interactions with every single person that he met, including to this day, how he interacts with us. And I think it's seen in John chapter one, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. How did Jesus deal with every person that he met? With 100% grace, and 100% truth. Not 50-50, not a balance, not like, okay, grace, 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 now truth. Every interaction with every person he met to this day, including us, was 100% grace and 100% truth. That's his nature. Just like he's 100% God and 100% man, combined together perfectly, not 50-50, not sometimes man, sometimes God, 100% God, 100% man, He's 100% grace, and he's 100% truth. That means that the woman who was caught in adultery, they came to him with two options. Either stone her or let her go and say she's free. Which one is Jesus going to do? What are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to stone her? The law says stone her. Or are you going to be a lawbreaker and let her go free? What are you going to do? 
You're going to give her grace? Are you going to give her truth? Which one are you going to do, Jesus? What did he do? He said, truth is truth. And she has broken the law. He said, yeah. He said, but grace is grace. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. They all walked away. Samaritan woman. Grace. You need a drink of water that'll never make you thirsty again. You're searching. And I got the answer for you. I got the answer for you. Grace. The truth. Go call your husband. See how grace and truth works? Not either or. Every interaction has to be both. See, we go to extremes. And we think, do we show grace or do we show truth? And we think, well, if I said grace to this person, then I got to do grace to them every single time. Every single time they come and ask me, I always have to say yes. No, who says? Who says the classic example? Well, I would feed the homeless person, but am I going to feed all the homeless people? Who said if you feed one, you have to feed them all? Who said that if you help your family financially, you have to help them every single time? Who said that if you change your plans on a Friday for someone else, you have to do it every time? That? Who said that? No one said that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus treated each situation with unique full of grace and full of truth. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what our calling is to do as well. John chapter one, verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The goal isn't a formula. The goal is Christ. Some relationships in your life need a little bit more truth, need some consequences, need some confronting, need some speak the truth. Some of your relationships. Some of your relationships need the exact opposite. They need grace. They need overwhelmed with grace. They need overflowing with the love and kindness of God. I don't have a formula because I don't believe in formulas, but I believe the goal. As Christ deals with us, deal with every situation, full grace and full truth. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you deal with us, Lord, not according to rules, not like one size fits all, but full of grace and full of truth. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to have that same mindset with all those around us and that we deal with, that we can set healthy boundaries that honor you and please you and that keep us in a state of spiritual and emotional health. We pray these things in the name of your Son, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.